If you have your Bibles, you can start heading there. We're going to be in Colossians 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back by the lovely Tom Brome. It's the most beautiful beard I think I've ever seen in my life. Um, man, let me just encourage you, um, look at your Bibles this morning with me. Don't just listen to the words that I proclaim and I'm preaching. It's important that you are seeing these words for yourself. So grab a Bible, head there with me, Colossians, New Testament. Well, Pastor Jeff has been leading us through a series called A Closer Look at Jesus over the past few weeks. And we've looked at the person of Jesus, the priority of Jesus, and the patterns of Jesus so far. We're going to be continuing with our final teaching in that series next Sunday with the preaching of Jesus. But today, we're just going to take a short break from that series and we're going to look at a passage that teaches us about the identity of the people of Jesus. What that identity looks like lived out in a life for him. So just a little history about Colossians. Paul, he writes this letter to the church in Colossae, which is in modern day Turkey. And he does this during one of his many imprisonments in Rome. And what's interesting about this letter is that he actually writes it to a church that he didn't start, nor has he ever even met. But it was started by a dear friend of Paul's named Epaphras, who became a Christ follower through hearing the gospel preached by Paul. And now Epaphras had recently visited Paul in prison and he was updating him on the state of the church in Colossae. And he explained that the church was suffering under the pressures of both pagan mysticism and polytheism, this, this worship and acceptance of other gods that the Greek and the Roman world, world were worshiping, gods like Aphrodite and Hermes. And they were also experiencing pressures from Jewish religious leaders who were trying to pull them back into ceremonial works of the law, both of which minimize the true gospel, right? The work of Christ and his rightful place as the one and only savior and king. Now the dangers and the pressures that the church were facing during the time that Paul writes this letter, they are not really much different than the ones that we are facing today, right? Pressures to appear religious, to hold to the rules that we follow and the church that we attend over the savior we have and the one that we love. This is what Jeff has been preaching over the last few weeks. And so you may think, well, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see how that's hard for us. But I mean, I don't think I'm really in any danger of like worshiping any Greek or Roman gods anytime soon. I mean, Nobody's like handed me any tract material lately on like Epaphrodites and asked me to like come follow him. And that may be true, but I can bet that you've struggled with what the worship of those gods represented, right? The worship of money, material possessions, finding identity in all of your things. These are the things Hermes was the God of. Or maybe you struggled with idols of sexual pleasures, other forms of sensuality like that promoted of the god Aphrodite. Or maybe it's less noticeable but still functional identities like knowledge, power, fame. Or here's a really big one in today's society, just doing what makes you happy, being 
who you are, just staying true to yourself. Now, maybe as I went through that list of things, you were thinking how you're not directly failing in any of those areas of your life right now. And my question for you this morning is that, is it that? Or is it maybe that you've just grown a little lax in letting some of those things rule and therefore identify you? See, what Paul wants us to see is that we don't just have to be purposely failing at these things for them to do damage. We can simply become apathetic towards them and it will have the same result, which is a life of spiritual immaturity. What Paul is striving for, what Epaphras is working towards, is what he says at the end of this letter, which is to present a people who are mature in Christ. See, for the Christian, whether it's a purposeful pattern of sinful activity or a religiously ignorant passivity, they will both leave you in the same place of spiritual immaturity. It's kind of like if you've ever planted a garden, all right? Growing up, we always planted a garden. My dad always made this a huge family ordeal. And um, I always kind of really enjoyed it, probably mostly because we had this big tractor with a big tiller on the back, and he would let me run that and till up the soil and get everything ready for planting. What wasn't as much fun for a 10-year-old was what happened later that summer when it came to the upkeep of that garden, all right? I spent hours in that stupid garden pulling weeds, all right? I hate pulling weeds. If you've ever grown a garden, though, you know the importance of this and keeping up with it, all right? Because if you don't, the weeds around the plant, they'll begin to choke it out. They begin to rob it of its nutrients, and that plant actually won't grow to its full maturity. It won't be as rich or as full or as plentiful. Now, I would spend hours in the morning doing that. So I would always go out in the cool of the morning. I never wanted to be in the sun. I don't like the heat. If you know me, you know I don't like the heat. I don't like being hot. So I'd go out in the morning and I would start. Now what would happen as the day went on is sun would begin to hit pockets of the garden. And let's just say those areas didn't get weeded quite as well, as in like at all. And you would always know when we got to the end of the year when it came time for harvest because those areas, they wouldn't be as plentiful. Now, I know all analogies break down, but all that to say, I wasn't blatantly sabotaging any of those plants, all right? I didn't like have an agenda on the onions, all right? There was, I had nothing against them. And yet avoiding doing the work in those areas, it still had the same outcome on their maturity. See, the church in Colossae wasn't blatantly failing, right? They weren't sinning by giving into and worshiping other gods or adhering to the works that the religious leaders were trying to place on them. They had actually been a thriving church, living out the mission of the gospel, all right? Paul, he praises God for this at the beginning of this letter. But they were growing weary and apathetic and avoidant of the work in their own lives and they needed to be reminded again, not just of what Christ had done for them in a theological sense, but the power and the identity that Christ had in them and to continue to strive to outwork that in their daily lives. We need to be reminded of that too. So let's pray this morning before we dive into God's word that he would remind us of that, that he would reignite that in us. 
Father, would you illuminate the glory of Christ in us this morning through your word? We don't want to walk away this morning with just a bunch of theological knowledge, but with a deeper love for Christ and the identity we have secured in him, that we would see him more fully as your word describes him to be, as the object of our faith, as the visible image of you, the creator of all dominions, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the unifier and the reconciler of all things, our savior through his suffering on the cross, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, the triumphant victor over sin and Satan and death and the exalted Lord of life and glory. This is our savior and he is the only true pattern for us of Christian living and we can do nothing apart from him. So encourage our hearts again this morning, God, that we are not apart from him. And we pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen. Colossians 3, pick up with me, verse 1, we'll read all the way through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord, church. Praise be to God. We're going to break our passage out this morning into three sections, if you want to write these down, if you're a note taker. Verses one through four, we're going to look at our identity established. Our identity established. Verses five through 14, we're going to look at our identity outworked. And then lastly, we're going to finish up in those last two verses, 15 through 17, with our identity matured. So let's look at that first part of the passage again. Put your eyes on it with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand 
of God. What does Paul mean when he says, seek the things that are above? Does he mean to just think about what heaven must be like? Or that we are to seek the physical place of Christ, where he is, the actual throne on which he is seated at the right hand of God? Or that we should place all of our focus just on being in heaven eventually, right? Having mindsets of, well, everything here is just horrible, all right? So nothing, nothing really matters here. I'm just, I'm just here waiting it out. Let me just, let me just think towards heaven. I don't think that it's any of those, but I believe what Paul is calling us to rather is to seek the very being of Christ who has saved us, all right? His rule, his power, his authority, his character, how he lived here on earth and who he is presently for us, all right? Seeking the things that are above, it's not a call to seek heaven as a location, but rather to seek our savior who reigns there and to do this continually. All right, Dr. Arkent Hughes, theologian, he says, the word seek here is a present imperative, which means a continuous ongoing effort is not just re recommended for a life of Christian maturity, but required, all right? Meaning it's not just a one and done instance, all right? Christ doesn't just save us and then we just sit back and we chill out and wait for heaven and somehow we become more mature in him along the way. We are to seek and to do this continually. Paul tells us then in verse two that we continually seek the things that are above by continually setting our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. What I want you to see this morning in this passage is that mature, maturity in Christ, it doesn't just happen passively, right? This has to be a consistent outworking for us, not just something that takes place on Sundays for an hour and a half. We cannot just assume that attending church on a Sunday is going to make us into more mature followers of Christ. If that's the only time of the week that we ever seek or we set our minds on Christ, it's just not gonna happen. It's interesting, we wouldn't assume that about anything else in life. Why do we do it with our Christianity? Like, I don't think anyone in here thinks that they can go and sit at Mike's music corner for an hour during the week and listen to others practice their instrument and that they're gonna somehow become proficient musicians. Like that's just, that's not gonna happen. Or that going to Nickel and Bean twice a week and having my boy Nick Dotson here make you one of the most ballin' lattes you've ever had in your life is gonna turn you into some amazing barista. No, when, when we wanna grow in something, we seek it. We set our minds on it. We outwork it and practice it consistently. And you may think, well, that just sounds like works-based salvation, Scott. And it would be if we were talking about attaining our salvation, but we are not. Paul is not talking here about attaining your salvation. He is speaking to believers, those who have salvation. 
And he is calling them into maturity in that salvation by outworking it from the new life that they have been given. This is what he says in verse three. Look again with me. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul wants these believers to understand the reality of their salvation now, right? Not just futuristic, not just something that's going to happen eventually, but now. There's three realities here about our identity that Paul proclaims, at least three. These are the three I'm doing. First one, a part of us has died, right? It is no longer. Second, there is a newness of life that has been given to us, but we can't see it. It's hidden. It's out of view. Third, this newness of life rests in Christ, who is our life and who will one day appear to us to give us this life in its fullness of glory with him. And you might think that just sounds insane. That sounds crazy. And it is. It is glorious insanity. I mean, talk about being out of touch with reality, Paul. What do you mean I have died? Also, how could I have died and yet still have life? How, how do we make sense of that? There's probably no greater book in all the New Testament than Romans to speak to the realities of these truths. We just celebrated this last week with baptisms, what Paul is describing here in these first few verses and what he lays out very clearly for us in Romans 6. I want you to turn there with me. Just a couple of books back. It's after the Gospels, Acts, Romans. We're going to bounce back and forth between Colossians and this passage another time this morning. So if you want to keep a finger here, you can. Pick up with me in verse 3 of Romans 6. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And then this is the important verse. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that that life that you once lived before Christ saved you, that is no longer your life, all right? The life of sin and disobedience to God, the life of distorted sexuality and fulfilling passions and desires of your flesh and fulfilling and living for only yourself, that was put to death with Christ at the cross. And just as his life became new again in his resurrection, 
so have you been given a new life in him. And just as sure as he ascended to God with that life, so he will come again to give to you the fullness of that life in your glorified state with him. So it may be hidden, but it is no less real and no less secure. In fact, it is all the more real and all the more secure because it is back to the original reality of what God created it to be. And God is calling us, Paul is calling us, to live to that reality and that identity in the present, now. All right, and so he moves on to the, from the understanding of that as practical knowledge to the outworking of that in the next verses. So turn back with me to Colossians 3. Join with me again, verse 5. We've established our identity, and now Paul appeals to us to work out that identity. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'm not going to break down or get into the weeds with what every single one of those things in that part of the text means this morning. That would be, uh, that would be a sermon on its own and we would be here till two o'clock. Nobody wants that. But what I do want you to see is that there is an importance to the way that Paul lays out this portion of the text. Notice he doesn't just say to put on the new self and then act as if the ways of sin no longer have any effect on you in this world. Right, that, is, that is not the call here, to just fake it till you make it. All right, Paul, he's not asking us to deny the present reality of this fallen nature of this world, all right, of which we are still presently very much a part of. What he is calling us to is to look to what's more true and what's more real in our life that is hidden with Christ. In the church, we refer to this as what's called the now but not yet, all right? And it's a tension that we live in as believers here in a fallen world. And it's a tension that we will live in until Christ either returns or we go to be with him. Paul isn't calling us here to deny that tension. He's not saying, all right, just, just take your sin, cover it up, and just act like it's not there. That would be lying to ourselves 
and to one another, which is exactly what he is saying to not do in verse nine. Look at verse nine again. He's not talking there about not telling fibs to one another, all right? He's talking about being honest about our realities. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is saying, don't just try to appear to one another as if you don't have any sin to root out in your life still. All right? You need to fight to put these things off and fight hard. And a part of that fight is being honest with the body of believers that God has placed you in about your sins and your struggles. Because here, no one is better than the other. All right, Paul is saying something very specific in verse 12 when he says that there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying something specific. And it's not just that God is creating a multi multicultural people. It is that, but he's also saying your sins, they're not any different than your brother and sister over there. All right, just because you grew up in church and you have more Bible verses memorized than they do. Don't lie to one another and go acting like you are any less of a sinner in need of a savior than they are because it's not true. And you not only lie in doing this, you make God out to be a liar. This is what it says in 1 John 1. You don't need to turn there with me. You can if you want though. It says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, meaning if we bring our sins to light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous. Listen to this last verse. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Don't try to act with one another as if you don't still got sinful junk to put off in your life because you do. So do I. And let me just say, you, you can try to do that you can try to just put on the good Christian hat and cover up your sins. And you may even be able to sustain that for a time, but it will eventually fail. And man, have we seen the danger of this in the church global over the last few years with the failures of so many Christian leaders who have attempted to cover up their sins instead of being honest with others about them and fighting against them. This does not, and it will not lead to a life of Christian maturity, church. How could it? It's kind of like I have this older Chevy truck, all right? I call her Trusty Rusty. 
She has been in her uh, Ohio her whole life. She needs some serious body work. I think I told somebody last night she has antique fenders. That's what I like to say. She's got antique fenders. And I could go and I could paint over all that rust, all those holes, all those imperfections. And it might look okay for a while, but what's going to happen eventually is that that paint is going to begin to peel. Those same rust spots, they're still going to be there. Those dings and those holes, they're still going to be present because I didn't sand down. Right? I didn't remove any of the pieces of pitted steel to make way for the new steel to go in. I didn't do any of the work to prepare to apply the new. I just, I just covered it up. That's not the call here. The call from Paul is to put off the old self so that the new can have validity, right? So that it can adhere, so that it can be lasting. And let me just say, we do this really imperfectly, right? I, I know this is, this is a heavy sermon, right? I've been dreading it all week. I know it is a heavy sermon. And so I want you to hear me. There is, there is so much grace for you in Christ. Actually, it's even more than that. There is nothing but grace for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that grace lead you though in the battle of this tension, right? Let his grace become the power in your fight against sin, not the excuse to hide it or to be passive in it. Listen to what Romans 6 verse 1, you can flip back with me if you still have your finger there. It says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. For how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Let God's grace lead you in the fight against who you used to be and in the putting on of who he has declared you to be now. And as that grace leads you in these things, as your true identity in Christ becomes more and more cemented and matured, there are glorious assurances that begin to take place. Things that have always been yours in Christ, but the renewal of your mind in Christ begins to understand and cherish and rest in them more and more because the things, the things that once ruled the thoughts of your mind and the actions of your life, they are actually becoming less and less. This is what Christian maturity looks like. Here's what Pastor Paul Tripp says about what our identity in Christ means for us as we grow in the knowledge of it and we live out its realities. He says it means no more need to search for myself, no need to grasp for meaning for my life or purpose for what I do, no need to hope for inner peace, that sense of well-being of which every heart longs, no need to hope that someone or something will make me happy or give me joy. I no longer need any of these things because I understand that grace has connected me to Christ and God has named me his child. The reality of our identity in Christ, that, that inner peace that Paul Tripp describes is the life of maturity that the Apostle Paul longs to see the people of God have. Right? For us to know 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that we belong to God so that we are free to live out the realities of that now, all right? That we can know the peace of Christ and live a life of thankfulness for the new life and the new family that he has put us in, which is his church. Which is why he ends this portion of the text in verses 15 through 17 this way. Look at them with me if you would. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what Christian maturity looks like. And it doesn't come passively. It doesn't come without consistently seeking and setting our minds on Christ and our true identity in him, fighting against the sin that once ruled us and putting on the new life that we have. So the questions that I'll leave you with this morning are these. Where's your identity rest? What are you setting your minds on? What do you, what do you find yourself consistently seeking after and striving for? Is it money? Fame to be known? Success? Puffing yourself up with knowledge? Maybe just being the best version of yourself? Or is it Christ? Is it a love for him, a life lived out through him, which produces maturity in him? This is what Paul wants for us. And this is what Christ has secured for us. All right, let's pray. Father, may we find all of our identity in you. We are not our own. We read it this morning. We belong to you. You have made us. You have redeemed us and you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and into your marvelous light. We are made alive in you and only you. Our life is secure in nothing but Christ. So would you cement that truth in us this morning? May it lead us in the fight against the sin in us that still remains and towards maturity in Christ. Father, may we remember all that Christ forwent to secure this reality for us. We love you, Lord. Grow us in that love that we would cherish you more and more that the assurance of our life hidden with Christ would grow to maturity until the day that we appear with you in glory. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.